Will you please remain standing for the reading of God's Word? Today we'll be covering a lot of ground, so we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10, all the way to chapter 9, verses 5. So it says, In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness, your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased in you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and that there may be fairness, as it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but that he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord Jesus himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to those men. Now in this superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and I find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to, by saying nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that A may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Man, we're covering a lot of ground. Good job, Tony. Give him a big round. That was like almost two chapters. Hey, faith comes by hearing, and so that's why we're coming from so much. Uh, in the event that you did not catch Tony, which would be strange if you did not, we're going to find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 beginning in verse 10, and we're going all the way through chapter 9, verse 5. And so uh, while you open or load your Bible, thank you for being here this afternoon. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Once more, 
We have quite a bit of ground to cover this afternoon, so let's dig right in. Last week, especially if you are new, we began our series throughout chapters 8 and 9 in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. This is a church that he planted, and here he's writing to them on generous giving, and this is something intentional. He's not just uh, writing randomly to them about generosity. You see, Paul communicated to them that the church in Jerusalem was experiencing hardship, and the Corinthians were full of zeal. They were earnest, and you're going to hear that word over and over again in these two chapters, and basically it means that they were passionate, uh, they were eager to jump on this mission with Paul to bring relief, financial relief, to the church in Jerusalem. And in the the context of these two chapters, what we see is that the Corinthians had excellent intentions. They they were on a spiritual high. They want to jump in. They want to get it done. But here Paul writes to them because their good intentions had not led to godly action. They had not completed their gift. And so last week what we saw is that Paul uses the story of the Macedonians. It's a group of churches. He uses the story of the Macedonians as an example of generous giving motivated by grace and not circumstance. Then he connects this example to the supreme example of generosity and grace in Jesus who gave it all so that we might be rich in him. Examples are incredible influences. As I was studying for the text, I began to remember my mom giving me great examples of generosity and blessing, of which I wasn't thankful enough for. I can see her filling out the giving envelopes for her church every week, being generous and consistent. I can remember going to HEB with her uh, for groceries and seeing her regularly think about how not just to have enough, but to get a little bit more just in case my cousins came over, the guys from the wrestling team came over, and there would always be enough. I remember my mom hooking my brothers and I up with gancitos and joyas. And uh, my eldest brother and I would stash the gancitos in the freezer underneath everything, not just because they taste better frozen, but to hide it from everyone, including my cousins. My mom was very generous in her blessings, while my brother and I could be very selfish and hoarders of gancitos. We were the opposite of what this text is urging us to be, generous people driven by grace. In our text, Paul is very careful in how he lays out motivations for generosity, covering everything from theological to practical motivations. But all of this is first rooted in our understanding of God's grace for us. Paul has been making it abundantly clear to the uh, the Corinthians and to us that generosity is always, always begins with a heart shaped by grace. Regularly throughout this chapter, or these two chapters, he uses the phrase, this act of grace, which comes from his encouragement to the Corinthians to grow in all areas of the Christian life, including this one, that is generosity. Paul doesn't separate generosity from faith, from knowledge, love, or speech, and neither should we. And so here's how we're going to break down our time. We're going to look at three sections. We're going to look at the benefits of giving, 
the beauty of integrity, I tried keeping these all Bs, the beauty of integrity and the blessing of giving. One more time, the benefits of giving, the beauty of integrity, and finally, the blessing of giving. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get to work. I'll give you kind of a bit of a preview. We're going to spend most of our time more than likely in verses 10 through 15. But let me pray and then we'll examine the text. Bless you. Father, what do we have that we have not received? You are the giver of all that we have, and so to that we ask, we ask that you would make us gracious people, that you would remind us of the grace that we have received. Father, we ask that your grace motivate our generosity just as we see Paul urging the Corinthians in our text. Father, enable us to take heart this afternoon by giving you our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. So as Paul continues to encourage the Corinthians, he begins this first section by unpacking the benefits of giving. If you look at verse 10, he opens by saying, and in this matter, the matter of generosity, and in this matter, I give my judgment or my opinion. This benefits you. <clears throat> One of the things that we're going to see here and in the coming verses is more of the backstory between Paul, the Corinthians, and this offering that he's collecting. But nevertheless, we see that Paul writes to them and tells them that their giving benefits them. Well, how? How, how does them giving benefit them? What, what are these benefits? In verses 10 through 12, we see that the first benefit is that it reveals a heart transformed by grace. So let's read just briefly. We're not going to unpack everything, reread it all over again. He says, and in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. The Corinthians started this campaign a year ago. They started off with zeal and earnestness and this let's get it done attitude. Paul comes to them with this uh, news about the saints in Jerusalem and the Corinthians are all about it. They want to jump in to bring relief to them. In the following chapter, momentarily, Paul writes that, their zeal, their eagerness, their excitement, their passion led to their desire and involvement, and it led to being contagious for other churches to get involved. And so the first benefit, once more, is that this, their giving, their generosity, reveals a heart transformed by grace. If the act of giving generously is an act of love, then it is the fruit of a heart first transformed by grace. Earlier in this chapter, Paul tells them, hey, if you want to demonstrate your love, make sure that you give so that your love is genuine. Obviously, it's not the only thing that we can do to show that our love is genuine, but in the context of what Paul is saying, he says, if you follow through with this gift, it proves that your love is genuine. And so the first benefit to the giver, to the Corinthians, is that it reveals that their hearts have been captivated by grace. Paul tells them that you wanted to do this. You said you were going to follow through. Once more, he writes, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it. If God was the one who first placed this desire in the Corinthians so much that it stirred up other churches to join in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, then this good desire 
must include follow-through of a good deed. It is to their benefit. Desiring to give is a good thing, but without follow-through, it is incomplete. And this is the case for the Corinthians. Good intentions is not the same thing as true generosity. Continuing, Paul goes on to say, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well. It's the only time in these two chapters that Paul gives them an imperative or a command where he tells them what to do. This is the only time he actually has something, and he says, finish it. Follow through with what you said you were going to do. So unlike the song that says, let's get this started, Paul is saying, let's get this finished. You can hear even the, the, the echo of the words from James, faith without works is dead. Hey, you have mentioned that you wanted to start this, you had this eagerness, so see it all the way through. Last week, we examined briefly 1 John 3, where John writes, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. What Paul is saying is, talk is cheap. So by you following through with this act of grace, it reveals that your heart has been transformed by grace. The second benefit is that giving generously is a matter of fairness. So let's keep going. Let's drop down to verse 13 for a moment. Paul says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. The second benefit is that giving generously is a matter of justice. That word fairness could be translated to the word justice. In other words, it meets their generous giving, meets genuine needs. In this section, Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us that it's not the size of the gift that matters, but rather our willingness to give with what we have. Grace-driven generosity reflects a readiness to give. And so here's where I think we get into trouble. One, there might be some of you, there might be others, Christians in general, who think that their giving doesn't make any difference. Earlier this week, I was on the phone with my son. He's in college in Wyoming, and I'm helping him work through budgets, and he's attending this good church, and he's working a lot of hours in addition to going to school full-time, and one of the things he says is, Dad, I just don't think my 20 bucks is going to matter, right? And in that, it was really a really good conversation because in that moment, I tell him, hey, on the contrary, it matters huge. It matters to God because to the Philippians, Paul says that your offering is fragrant, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's not your wallet, son. It's your heart. So that's one problem that we might run into. We just don't think it's going to make a difference. I want you to know, man, your giving is pleasing to God. The second issue that we might run into is where we begin to compare ourselves to others who might give more. Let me just gently challenge you. Are you shaped by God's grace for you? See, this matter of generosity is a matter that is between you and the Lord for the health of the church. 
So does grace, generous giving begin with, where, with your heart being shaped by grace? And then finally, there are those who, who don't give at all. And we covered this a little bit last week. And, and, and if, we're, if there are those who don't give at all, Paul would say, then you lack an understanding of the gospel. You lack an understanding of what God's grace is. See, Paul's reminding them that this isn't a matter of, of rich or poor, but whether or not we have been shaped by grace in the first place. It is grace-driven generosity that reflects our readiness and willingness to give. The theologian John Calvin said it this way, in this way, none are excused. For the rich on one hand owe to God a larger offering, and the poor on the other hand ought not to be ashamed of their slender resources. In this, you could maybe assert that the Corinthians might want to push back on Paul because he's encouraging them, back up to verse 12, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The Corinthians might want to push back. They might be thinking, are you, are you asking us to give or do as much as the Macedonians? Do you want us to just sell everything just so that we can be like the other churches? But Paul, being a good pastor, continues to be practical and earnest with them. See, he doesn't want them to give in a way where they, the Corinthians, are burdened and broke. That's not what he's saying. He's not even saying that they should give the same amount as these other churches. He's also not guilting them to do more or as much as other churches. But here's where we get into the justice of it. Paul is saying that their wealth and the church in Corinth was, was known to be a pretty wealthy church. It was in a large city. He is saying that their wealth should not be hoarded. In other words, he is stirring them to use their abundance as the way of meeting a specific need. Hoarding our abundance while there is need, especially within the church, or in this case where other Christians are experiencing great trouble, hoarding our abundance to Paul is an injustice. This isn't communism. Paul isn't getting at that. Paul is saying that this is about generosity meeting legitimate needs. He's not saying, hey, all of you need to have the same donkey. All of you need to have the same money. You need to have the same house. You need to live in the same kind of condition. He's not saying that. He's saying that this is meeting a, a legitimate need. To Timothy in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul unpacks wealth and being wealthy. And what we see is that he doesn't have beef with people who are wealthy. In fact, to Paul, he's saying, it's not wealth that's the problem, it's arrogance. Coming back to 2 Corinthians, he's asking Christians to pull their resources together in order to meet the need of another church that they wanted to support. Now, that statement is really strong. And that's just covering that big, a big summary of this section in 2 Corinthians. That statement can be really strong, that he's calling them to share their resources, to give generously in order to meet the needs of a church, right? He's, he's kind of exhorting them a little bit because they haven't followed through with their gift, and that could be a challenge for us. 
Man, using my resources, using our resources generally, uh, uh, generously to meet the needs of another church or to meet the needs of my church, if it's bothersome to you, could it be possible? Could it be possible that the reason it's bothersome to us is because we love our money more than we love Jesus? Could be possible. Chew on it. Additionally, as Paul is urging them and kind of encouraging, exhorting them to give generously, to follow through with this gift, there's a few more things that he's not saying. He's not throwing planning for the future out the window. That would be unbiblical. He's not talking about being prudent in your savings. He doesn't mention that either. He doesn't say you can't enjoy good things. See, God is not opposed to any of those things. He's giving you the means, therefore praise him with thanksgiving. So if you just got back from a weekend uh, vacation, praise God. That's a wonderful gift. Paul isn't suggesting that we live in equal condition. Far from it. The Bible is not opposed to wealth or being wealthy. But if, here's, it's going to come up to a question, but if in our abundance, even though everything else is taken care of, and we see a need in the church and do not meet that need, Paul's question to us would be, how is that justice? How can we say we are a people of justice? Paul's teaching on grace-driven generosity begins with this vertical relationship with God that we have been reconciled to God. He has given us everything so that we might be rich in Him, and that vertical relationship has horizontal implications. Paul is asking the Corinthians not just to follow through on what they said they would do, but to be intentional with this gift. We should ask God to search our hearts to examine what we have given and determine whether or not we've given willingly, in other words, that we, our hearts have been shaped by grace, whether or not we have given readily, in other words, we're motivated by grace. We should examine whether we've given generously, enabled by God's grace. Man, we should consider and examine whether we have given graciously because we are recipients of the greatest grace ever. To back this entire exhortation up, Paul points them to the story in Exodus 16. This is in verse 15. Paul says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Exodus, Exodus 16 is where God, uh, after redeeming his people, hooks them up with manna from the sky in order to meet their daily needs. Gansitos for everybody. And so what happened? It's a wonderful story. I encourage you to read it. So what we see in Exodus 16 is that some gathered more of that man. Others gathered less, but all were allowed to take some for their household. We read that some gathered more so that they would make up for those who couldn't gather as much and hook them up. So they shared their resources. Some, despite God's provision, tried hoarding the gansitos, tried hoarding them and withholding from those in present need. And what happened? It spoiled. 
The story of manna coming down from heaven and people hoarding it and spoiling is a picture of how our hoarding looks and smells to God. Boy, you didn't like that one. Take it up with God. All right, here we go. (laughs) The benefits of giving for us are that it reveals hearts transformed by grace and hands ready to administer justice. Our problem isn't provision. It's distribution. Our problem isn't economic. It's spiritual. And it is only by and with grace that we can address these matters of spiritual arrogance. It is grace that reveals whether or not our hearts have truly been wrapped around the gospel. It is only grace that reveals whether or not we genuinely love one another and care about justice in our church, in our community, our valley, and beyond. I think money or generosity is a hard word for many because we have allowed money to govern our perception of grace. That's why it's so hard for us to wrap our mind around it. But in this big text, we see that the benefits of giving reveal hearts shaped by grace and hands ready for justice. Let's look at the next section. This is the beauty of integrity. So the first section, the benefits of giving, Paul says, hey, you following through, it's going to benefit you. It reveals your heart, tells me that you're ready to administer justice. Now let's look to integrity. This is verses 16 to 24. And I love this section because Paul isn't stirring their emotions. Like in other words, he's not encouraging them or pushing them uh, so that they would give without intention or unknowing. Uh, He's not guilting them them to give compulsively. He's not forcing them to give on his account. And so in order to help them, he provides them with financial integrity. In other words, he provides them with his heart in this matter and his heart for them. Because, I mean, think about it. Paul's just kind of gone theological. He's unpacked Exodus 16. He's kind of pushed them a little bit. Hey, follow through with what you said you were going to do. And the Corinthians could be receiving this letter and thinking, yeah, cool, the benefits, right? Yeah, changed hearts, changed hands. I get it. Really? How do we know you're not going to take this money and dash with it, right? And so Paul, at this point, takes himself out of the equation in order to provide them with integrity. And what we're going to look at in this section are two things. The first is that financial integrity, and all churches should uh, have this, financial integrity involves credibility. Let's look at verse 16. Uh, 16 and 18 and another one. Here we go. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus, the same earnest, there's that word, you're going to see that a lot, means passion, the same kind of passion uh, I have for you. He not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very passionate, he's going to you on his own accord. Verse 18, with him, that is with Titus, we are sending the brother, we don't know who it is, Church uh, tradition and history would argue that this might be Luke. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And so what we see is that Paul is telling them, hey, I'm going to take myself out of the equation, and I'm actually going to send a team. 
And it's not just people that you don't know. It's actually people you do know who have good reputation, who have credibility among the churches. In fact, one of them I didn't appoint. The churches did. He wants them to know <clears throat> that they're known by the churches, they have good credibility, that, that their heart is earnest, it's passionate, it's not apathetic. They're well-respected, they're connected in the community. They don't lack accountability. And if you weren't here with us last week, when he mentions Titus, this is one of the guys that traveled with Paul. Uh, he did ministry with Paul. He planted churches in the island of Crete. Paul wrote this letter to him, wonderful letter, right? So he mentions Titus. He mentions this famous preacher. But he also mentions that their motives are, are trustworthy. Verse 20, he goes on to say, we take this course. Um, actually, let's go back, verse 19. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out, there it is, this act of grace for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So their credibility, their motivation is God's glory. It's not their personal gain. Verse 22, he mentions another one. And with them, with Titus and this famous preacher, with them we are sending our brother, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So here's this individual who's been tested by Paul's team. Maybe he's a deacon. We don't know. We just know that three of these dudes are going to the Corinthians. Paul has removed himself from this equation, and he's providing them with financial integrity with, uh, through, through credibility of others. Financial integrity involves credibility. Secondly, financial integrity involves accountability. Once more, verses 20 to 21. Paul says, we take this course. In other words, I'm sending you a team of these three dudes, Titus, the preacher, and this other brother. They're going to go disciple you. They're going to go answer your questions. They're going to go on ahead to help you follow through with what you said you were going to follow through with. And the reason I'm doing this here it is, verse 20. The reason I'm doing this is so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by him, by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. See, Paul removes himself from the handling of the money. He's entrusting it to these three men. He, doesn't, he wants to be blameless before the Corinthians. But in addition to that, you hear Paul's heart. Because Paul is really aware that Satan has many schemes, and one of them is financial infidelity. And Paul wants to put that to death and not even let that be a question. And how does he do it? I'm going to remove myself and send this team who's going to go and answer your questions. I didn't even appoint some of them. Paul wants to do what is honorable, what is good, what is noble before God. He wants to do what is best for the Corinthians so that they can trust him and participate in what they're calling this act of grace. And he summarizes it in verse 24. So give proof. So this entire section is him naming the team. Verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. He's like, man, I've been talking about you to these guys. Show proof of your love by following through with what you said you'd do a year ago. Paul wants them to grow in the character of love. This act of grace, their generosity, this act of grace 
is evidence of their love for God, the churches, and Paul. Paul is saying, everything is set up so you can trust me. I'm not even in on this. Here's some questions for you. Is grace the determining factor of your generosity or is it your circumstance? Is grace the determining factor of your generosity or is it your circumstance? Secondly, will grace be what leads you to give generously or will you withhold selfishly? I love this section because it's primarily administrative. And it reminds me of the men and women who serve our church in administrative ways. And I'm so grateful to those who help with our finances in our church. They serve so well. They serve us, you, so well in this area. Last week I mentioned that we've been in the black for the last almost seven years. Next year we turn seven. We've been in the black at the end of the year because... I'll tell you why. Men and women who love God in our church men administer our finances for God's glory and not their personal gain. They are some of the godliest people I know, and I'm so thankful for them because they want to do what is honorable before God and what is good for us in our church. The beauty of financial integrity is that it is driven by the glory of God and not personal gain. And so finally, we come to the last five verses. Well, I should say the first five verses of chapter nine. This is the last section. This is the blessing of giving. So real quick, where am I on time? All right, we've looked at two sections, the benefits of giving and the beauty of integrity. And now we come to the blessing of giving. Last week, as we examined the beginning of chapter eight, we saw that Paul used the story of the Macedonians to inspire the Corinthians. Yet here in chapter nine, we learn that initially it was the Corinthians who inspired the Macedonians. And so here's what Paul writes to them, right? Paul has, man, he loves the Corinthians. He has supreme confidence in them. Now, it is superfluous, right? In other words, it's unnecessary. There's your $5 SAT word. It is unnecessary for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints because I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Achaia is the region where uh, Corinth is found, uh, that Achaia has been ready since last year. Here it is, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So it wasn't the Macedonians that were stirring up the Corinthians. It was initially the Corinthians that were stirring up the Macedonians. And so Paul says, hey, it's unnecessary for me to write to you about these things. Why? Because I know you're ready. I know you're going to see it through. I know you're going to do this. He's really confident that they're going to follow through. And so this giant section of Scripture that we've looked at is really Paul just pastoring them well, guiding them with grace. He's like, I know you guys are going to do this. And I've seen the fruit of your eagerness, of your passion. It led other churches to join on mission, churches that we actually weren't even going to ask. And they're, they're all about this. Your spiritual high was contagious. Keep it going. Right? It's almost like this little, I don't know what you would call it, like this godly competition, right? He's like, hey, I want you guys, Macedonians, Corinthians, I want you to outdo one another in showing the church in Jerusalem honor. 
And so he's very confident that they're going to follow through. He continues. Where is it? Verse 3. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. Verse 4. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you aren't ready, we will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be ashamed. He wants them to follow through with the gift, and he doesn't want other brothers coming only to hear that they didn't follow through. He doesn't want them to be ashamed. He wants them instead to be honored. He doesn't want to head in later with other members from the churches and be humiliated. And so he concludes with verse 5. So I thought it necessary. I want you to follow through with this gift. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction, not extortion, not forceful, not guilty giving. He uses the word gift twice in this section. It can be translated to blessing. So to Paul, this gift is more than just a gift. To Paul, this is their giving, their generosity is a blessing. He doesn't want them giving out of guilt, but out of grace. Paul sees giving as a blessing. He sees it as a ministry. Listen, Christian giving is not done begrudgingly, but generously. Paul wants them to give willingly because they've been transformed by grace. Paul wants them to give generously because they are captivated by the glory of God. Paul wants them to give faithfully because they're in the business of kingdom expansion, not personal expansion. And we know from Paul's letter to the Romans that they followed through. He writes to them, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia, that's Corinth, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. So they followed through and they were pleased to do it. Man, that grace motivated them. It wasn't guilt, but grace. The blessing of giving is that it comes from a heart shaped by grace, not one fueled by guilt. There's two ways to give. We can give generously, or we can give begrudgingly. When one gives generously, it is a response to God's grace for them to the one who rained manna from heaven, to the one who sent his own son on our behalf so that we might be rich in him. Grace-driven generosity is done by a heart shaped by grace. When one gives begrudgingly, it is a response that comes from guilt or pressure. This type of giving comes from a place of greed and ingratitude. 
So how can we begin to give from a place where we have been shaped by grace? Last week, I gave you two things to consider, and one of those was to begin with God questions, not I questions. And so the first thing was, ask God. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. Confess sin before Him. Receive counsel from His Word. Ask God hard questions. Lord, what do you want me to do? How much do I give? What areas do I need to grow in when it comes to this? Lord, this is actually what governs my heart when it comes to me thinking about generosity. Start with God questions, not I questions. This week, I want to encourage you to add some meat to those bones. Paul writes to the Corinthians. We looked at this uh, in chapter 8, verse 24. He says, Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. I mentioned that Paul wants them to grow in the character of love. Listen, love is not always that which is spontaneous. I know you want it to be, and I know sometimes it is, and that's great, that's awesome, but it's not always spontaneous. True love makes you disciplined. True love makes you plan. Some of you are already tuning out. I don't like planning. Well, maybe you don't love. Okay? <laughs> True love makes you disciplined. It makes you plan. It makes you think about a strategy. That's how Paul has outlined this entire section. From biblical conviction to financial integrity to the blessing in others. So here it is. Prioritize. How are we going to add meat to those bones? Here's two things. Number one, I want you to prioritize. What's the first thing you give toward when you see green? Because here's the thing. Everybody gives. Whether we give to God generously or don't give at all are two different questions, right? That's a totally different thought. Prioritize. Prioritize your giving. If we are to be, if we are recipients of grace, and one of the ways that we demonstrate that our hearts have been shaped by grace through generosity, then we're going to prioritize our giving. Secondly, plan. Super easy. Prioritize and plan. Grace-driven generosity prepares in advance to give. That might mean you need to go back and look over your finances. Maybe you have a spreadsheet for your budget. You're going to look it over. Maybe you're going to talk to your spouse about this and consider, man, how do we need to prioritize and how do we need to plan? What does that look like for us? Some of you may need to look over your budget. Some of you need to seek counsel. Hey, help me in some of these areas. Okay, prioritize and plan. Friends, let me remind you that grace-driven generosity doesn't begin with your wallets. It begins with our understanding of the gospel, the work of God for us in Jesus. Listen, the work of God for us in Jesus is what determines our generosity. And though this is all practical, this entire section was all practical, it is first all spiritual. If you are in Christ, remember that you are rich with grace. After all, the one who was rich became poor for our sake so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. This is first and foremost. This will always be first and foremost because the gospel is what rules and reigns our hearts. If we find ourselves bothered and burdened by something in the text, then ask what rules and reigns in your heart. 
Once more, start with God questions. Pray for God to search your heart. The psalmist writes this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me, not my way, your way, lead me in the way everlasting. If you're not a Christian, I've mentioned this, I'm so thankful that you're here. And you, my friend, are in spiritual debt. I'm not here to guilt you. I'm not even here for your wallet. I'm here because I care about you and your heart. The Lord Jesus isn't in the private jet business. He's in the restoration business. And all of this begins with your heart that is captive to your sin, your apathy, your hurt, your deepest longings. You are not strong enough to break free. No matter how savvy you are or how much you bench, you are not strong enough to break free. You will never be. You need the one who is stronger than the chains that hold you, and his name is Jesus. I'm not guaranteeing you financial freedom or prosperity, but I am guaranteeing you that coming before the Lord in faith and repentance, you receive a new heart, a new nature, and the wisdom of God for you as you move forward in these areas. All of this begins with your heart. Who or what rules or reigns your heart? Because it's not the God of the Bible, but it is God. How's that going for you? Come before the Lord in faith and repentance. Church, grace-driven generosity is the motivation of a heart transformed by grace. Let's pray. God, everything that we have is because we have received it from you. Our needs have been met because of you. Our interests and hobbies exist because you have given us abundantly. And yet, Lord, we confess that even in your provision, before we consider any thought toward generosity, we think about how we can make our lives richer, more self-sufficient, more status-oriented, without realizing that we do not only ignore your grace, but enslave ourselves in the name of entertainment, self-care, worry. Forgive us. Your word reminds us that generosity begins with your grace for us through Jesus. Your grace motivates our generosity, not randomly, but to grow in love for one another and our neighbor. Your grace enables us to root ourselves in the promises of your word and not the depth of our pockets.